This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to study your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the fact that we can always rely upon you. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we continue to pray for our nation, for our president, for our political and military leaders, that you would give them uh, wisdom during this time of war against terrorism, that you would continue to uh, watch over this nation and protect this nation. Uh, Father, we thank you for a safe return of Mark. We thank you for the safety of others from this congregation and those who are tapers uh, over in Iraq. We pray that you would continue to watch over them and keep them safe and return them home safely as well. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We pray that you would challenge us with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 3 John chapter 2. 3 John chapter 2, but we probably won't stay there for very long this morning. Last time we went through a study of this verse and how it has been abused and misused and distorted by the health and wealth doctrine of the Word of Faith, Born Again Jesus movement, otherwise known as the Prosperity Gospel. The way the verse reads is, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. I said the corrected translation of that was, I pray that you may prosper and be, uh, prosper in all things and be in good health, just as or even as your soul prospers. Now we saw last time that John's prayer here is a standard form of address in many ancient letters. Remember, they, the writers of the New Testament, New Testament are writing in a historical situation, in a historical context. So they don't write a letter as we would write a letter, putting the date at the top and then dear so-and-so and then closing out with a uh, <coughs> proper closing. They had their own literary forms and styles of that day. 
Nevertheless, the, these idioms, these forms and styles are not to be taken as simply that. The God the Holy Spirit has clearly taken these and invested them with new meaning. For example, Paul usually begins his epistles with the phrase grace and peace to you all. Now, in the ancient world, grace or charis was a standard form of greeting among the Gentiles. And in the Greek language, you would greet one another with grace, grace to you, charis. Among Jews, the frequent greeting was shalom or peace. What Paul does is come to take those two phrases, charis and arene or shalom, grace and peace, and he invests them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with new meaning, grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ, a recognition that grace comes only from God and peace comes only when you are oriented to grace, first at salvation and secondly in the spiritual life. Now in the same way, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is taking a standard idiom here and gives it new meaning. The standard idiom is the opening line. I, and this was a standard way of greeting someone in a letter, basically just saying, I hope that you, everything's going okay with you and that this letter finds you healthy. He is not praying, as we saw last time, that Gaius would have financial prosperity and that he would never, ever be sick, that he would always be healthy. That is not the basis of uh, that is not what is being taught here. So what John is saying is, I pray that things are going well for you on your journey through life and that you may be healthy. And then he shifts to that spiritual dimension in the same way that your soul does well. And the main verb here that is uh, used for doing well is the word uodao. Looks like this. U-O-D-A-O. E-U-O-D-O-O. And this last O is a long O. It comes from a compound word from hadas, meaning path or journey. And this E-U prefix means to be doing well. So having a pleasant journey or a good journey through life is what the idiom relates to. And then he applies that to the soul, that in the same way that your life goes well, we pray that, that it is uh, based on or in comparison to the way your soul is doing well. And here he recognizes that the ultimate issue in life, the real priority in life, is how well your soul is doing, not how well you are doing physically, not your material blessings or prosperity, because you may not have material prosperity. You may have loss. You may uh, be in a state of, of health testing where you uh, don't have good health. You may be going through numerous health crises, one after another. And what really matters, though, what enables you to weather those storms of life, the various adversities of life, is how well your soul is doing. So we need to ask the question, what is it or what does it take for the soul to do well? Now, this is going to be a class this morning that doesn't focus so much on detailed exegesis, and there's not going to be a whole lot here that's new. But what I want to do is stop and pull a lot of things together that we have 
been learning over the last several years to answer this question, what does it take for the soul to do well? We have to answer three basic questions. First of all, what is the soul? What exactly is the soul? Second, what is it that destroys the soul? What is the enemy of the soul? What creates uh, a soul that is not doing well? And then third, what are the resources that God has provided for the soul to do well, for the soul to progress, for the soul to have genuine health? So let's begin to answer the first question, what is the soul? We can learn this from looking at a passage, comparing a couple of passages which we've done in the studied in the past, 1 Corinthians 2.12 and Jude 7. 1 Corinthians 2.12 states that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now that word translated natural man is the Greek word psukikos, which means soulish. It's from the Greek word suke, meaning soul, and it clearly contrasts in this 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 section in 1 Corinthians 2:14 and 15 the natural man and the spiritual man. The next verse goes on to say, "But he who is spiritual appraises all things." So there's a contrast between the natural man and the spiritual man. Now, soulish is used in one other key place in the New Testament, and that's in Jude 19. It's not translated natural or soulish there. It's translated worldly-minded, which is a pathetic translation. Jude 19 states, these are the ones who cause divisions. Now, the these in context is referring to divisive unbelievers who are persecuting believers. These are the ones who cause divisions Worldly-minded, actually, that is sukikos. And then the last phrase, devoid of the spirit, as we've studied, is an interpret. There's an interpretation there that's wrong. In the Greek, the reading is not having spirit. Now, the the translator has to decide whether pneuma there, that's translated spirit, is an uppercase spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, or is a lowercase spirit for human spirit. Spirit has about, the word pneuma in the Greek, translated spirit, has about eight or nine different meanings. It can mean breath, it can mean wind, it can mean human spirit, it can be just a general term for the immaterial part of man, or it can be a technical term for that immaterial part of man which was lost at the fall and is regained at spiritual birth or salvation. And it's that that immaterial part of man that enables the soul to have a relationship with God. And this is how we understand it, that sukikos means not having a spirit. So the unbeliever does not have a spirit. We know from looking at the scriptures that man is composed of three parts, at least as man was originally created. He has a human body, physical body. Then his immaterial part is the soul. The soul is made up of four basic elements. This is the real you. The real you is not the body. Even though the soul cannot live apart from a body, there's always a body. There's an interim body between death and the resurrection body, and there's a resurrection body. But the soul needs some form of body in order to express itself. But it is the soul that is the real you. And whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, your soul never ceases existing. So in some sense, every 
everybody has eternal life. Now, the Bible doesn't ever talk about it in that terminology because eternal life has a double nuance. It also has, indicates the quality of life. It's not just life that goes on without end, but life that is uh, eternal in all of its dimensions so that the unbeliever who is in eternal condemnation is, cannot have eternal life, but he has unending life. His soul never ceases existence. So that soul, the real you, is made up of four elements. The first is the self-consciousness. This is your identity. You have an individual identity. You have a unique personality. You are uh, individually the way you are because of God's design, the Scripture says. You know who you are. You have self-awareness. When you look in the mirror, you know that that is you. When you see someone else in the mirror, you know who they are. You can distinguish yourself from other individuals. You have self-consciousness. You have a mentality. This is the ability to think, to reason, to utilize logic, to understand the things of God. You have a volition. This is the decider in the soul. This is, as it were, the traffic cop deciding uh, which way you're going to go. The volition is your decider, and this is the seat of responsibility. When you make good decisions, then you reap positive benefits. When you make bad, make bad decisions, you reap negative consequences. And then you have a conscience. A conscience is where the norms and standards are located in the soul. This is where your, your concepts of right and wrong are located. And everyone has a concept of right and wrong that uh, even though their concepts of right and wrong may be perverted, in their perversion they have a concept of what is right and what is wrong. And that's one of Paul's arguments in Romans chapter 2, that the presence of the conscience indicates uh, a recognition of personal responsibility and accountability, even though the standards in the conscience may be completely uh, distorted and perverted. So these four areas really interact. This is why in the diagram we have interlocking circles. We talk about each separate component for purpose of understanding, for purpose of breaking down the soul. But in reality, these are all interrelated and interconnected, and they all work together as a harmonious whole. So that sometimes, you know, it's difficult to, to separate your, your, um, your thinking from your decisions, and sometimes it's even difficult for, to separate that from emotion, which is really seated more in the body. That's why we talk about feeling. Feeling is a physical-based uh, terminology, that emotions are generated in the body. When you go back into the Old Testament and you study <clears throat> the terms that are used for emotions, when it talks about, for example, someone being angry, the literal Hebrew word is their nose burned. When it talks about compassion, it uses a word that talks about, that emphasizes the bowels. When it talks about worry, it also uses another word indicating the, the, what happens inside. And you know what happens when you start getting worried. You feel it internally. You feel it in your gut. Uh, this is, uh, so the Hebrews had a very concrete understanding, and so did the Greeks. So the terminology in scripture for many emotions are very uh, physical based. And that is, of course, where the sin nature is located. Now, in the original creation, uh, Adam and Isha were composed of three elements, the human body, the soul, and the human spirit. Now, the human spirit binds 
and interconnects and interacts with the four elements of the soul so that these four elements of the soul then were able to relate to God. In self-consciousness, they realized they were in the image and likeness of God. They reflected God to his creation, and they were to represent God to his creation. So Adam's self-consciousness wasn't just looking in the mirror and seeing himself as an independent creature, but when he looked in the mirror, he saw himself as a reflection of God. That was his role. In his mentality, he thought what God taught him to think. He thought God's thoughts along with him so that his mentality was completely dominated by divine viewpoint. In his conscience, he had a divine set of norms and standards. He knew that he could do anything. There was only one thing that was prohibited to him, and that was eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he had norms and standards that were completely oriented to God's absolutes. And then in volition up until the fall, he had positive volition that was oriented to God. But once he sinned, he became spiritually dead. God said, in the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. What happened? He lost that human spirit, that immaterial part of his makeup that enables his soul to understand God and to properly understand God's creation. So what we see here is that spiritual death is the first enemy of the soul and begins to destroy and erode the soul so that every human being since Adam is born spiritually dead with a soul in crisis. Every sweet little baby has a soul in, in crisis. And what do I mean by that? That soul is in crisis because lacking a relationship to God, lacking a human spirit that is able to understand God and is able, therefore, to properly orient to reality and orient to God, orient to his mission in life as, a, as one who is created in the image and likeness of God, this little brand new soul, and that little baby is trying to figure out reality all on its own and trying to make sense of everything all on its own while being dominated by a sin nature that has enslaved it to this rebellious orientation to God. And that's why this every person is born with a soul in crisis, and the only orientation of that soul is that of the sin nature, pure autonomy from God and rebelliousness to God, so that everyone is born disoriented to reality, they're disoriented from truth, they're divorced from God, and they're incapable of orienting their thinking to absolute truth, they're incapable of orienting their thinking to reality, and they're incapable of understanding God or his revelation due to the sin nature control of the soul and the absence of human sin. So every one of us is born in a soul crisis. We are not healthy, no matter how much modern purveyors, you know, the psycho-shamans and psycho-babblers are about having uh, soul health. You can't have soul health. If you're at, if you're if you're missing a human uh, uh, human spirit, so the soul is in it born in a state of crisis 
under the domination of the sin nature. So it is the sin nature that is the source of the attack and fragmentation on the soul. Now let's look at the reminder of where we are with the sin nature. The sin nature is motivated at its very very core by a lust pattern. We have all kinds of lust. Power lust, the desire to control, the desire to control your environment, the desire to control your spouse, the desire to control your kids, your family, the desire to control your coworkers, the desire to control all of the details in life so that you get this illusion of stability and tranquility because everything's under control. That's power lust. Uh, there's approbation lust. We want approval. We want people to tell us how good we are. So we move to California and go through a self-image-based school curriculum. We don't learn anything, but we feel good about it. Uh, we have all kinds of things that feed approbation lust. We want people to pat us on the back. Some people go to church because their approbation lust gets fed. They come in the back door. They want somebody to greet them, tell them how nice it is to have them there and go through all of this uh, greeter uh, friendly, fellowship-oriented mentality in a church where everybody's nice to them, and so they feel very special and very wanted, and that's why they go to church is because they get their approbation lust fed. And nobody, of course, wants that to be the basis for church, so it's nice for a church to be friendly, to recognize the fact that there are visitors there and to welcome them and to be uh, and to warmly be uh, greet them, but then you also have to respect their privacy. Some folks like to come to a church. They don't want all that. They just want to be left alone, come in, sit on the back pew, listen to the lesson, and leave. So you have to develop, as you grow up, a certain amount of sensitivity that people are different. Some people want more involvement than other people. But nevertheless, there should be a general sense of warmth and friendliness in a local congregation. I'm always always impressed when I go to various churches and uh, when I'm down in Houston, uh, it's it's always a sign of, you know, we always struggle with all these cross-cultural things. But I'll go to Houston and I'll speak at a, at, a, at a black church. And this happens every time. And there's a number of people that are tapers from this ministry who are not black. And they will come to church and they always leave. Everybody was so friendly. They were just so warm. They just welcomed us. We just felt a part of the congregation. And they always leave uh, just with that sense of being being made a part of that church, and I think sometimes that is that is missing. That is something that I think is very clear in the black community. There is a openness and a and an acceptance of people and a warmth there that you don't find in white churches, and that's because of different cultural backgrounds. I mean, different people, different cultures are different ways. For example, you go to the Middle East and you're around Jews in the Middle East; they're much more expressive of their emotions. That's why Jews pray with their hands up and they you know, they prostrate them, throw themselves down on the ground and all of this overt uh, emotional activity that is not emotionalism. That's just the way their, their culture uh, expresses itself, whereas white Europeans tend to be very closed and we just sit there and, you know, fold our arms and we're very quiet. We don't do that. So they're... But there's an area where just expressing warmth is good, but you don't want to feed people's approbation lust. And this is what creates so many problems in churches. Some of the worst people operating on approbation lust and power lust sit on 
deacon boards or elder boards of churches. And there, there's not an ounce of spiritual maturity there, but there's a tremendous desire to run things and to be in control and to have a position of power. So that's why it's always important to know someone for a long time before you put them in any position of responsibility, teaching in Sunday school, sitting on a deacon board or anything like that, because they could be just there operating on their power lust, approbation lust. Then you have all kinds of different lusts. You have sex lust, which, of course, is the first one that pops into everybody's mind. There's sex lust and there's money lust. There's a lust to have things, that, and we think that just by having things and having money that, that somehow we'll be happy. There's a lust for various chemicals. You have chemical lust, people who are dependent on drugs, whether it's uh, alcohol or uh, some sort of hallucinogenic drug or whether it's just one of the psychotropic drugs that create dependence. That's part of it. There's a lust for drugs. There's all manner of different kinds of lust. And it is these lust patterns that drive people. For example, if you have a lust pattern oriented to approval, then you want to do what's right because you want somebody to pat you on the back. So you're going to have a have an approbation lust that may produce uh, someone who is very strong in the area of human good. Human good, they're strong on morality. And so they may become very religious. They want to gain the approbation of God, so they're going to be very strong in the area of doing everything right. They're going to have a tendency towards legalism, and they're going to have a life that is not characterized by what we normally think of as sin. When we think of the sin nature, you're thinking about somebody who's operating in the area of sin, not the area of human good. But remember, the Pharisees were the most moral, upright people in their generation. These are people who were uh, who, who prayed seven times a day. They went to the synagogue, or went to the temple three times a day. They were um, extremely particular about following every detail of the law and every detail of their religious traditions, except. All of that was done in arrogance, thinking that they could control or that they could gain the approbation of God. So just because you're operating on morality doesn't mean that it's not coming from the sin nature. Now, this lust pattern is going to trend in one of two different directions, depending who you are. And everybody's a little different. If you have that desire for approbation and you want everybody's approval, and you're operating on human good and religious religious human good, then you're going to trend towards asceticism and legalism, giving up everything for God. Oh, God ought to be so pleased with me. I make sure I get up every morning at 5 o'clock and read my Bible for 30 minutes and, and pray for 30 minutes. And Not that that's wrong, and that can be done in the right context, but there are so many people who think that they have to regiment their life and that regimentation and clicking off their little spiritual checklist every day is what gains them approval with God and what makes them spiritual. Now, you should be reading your Bible every day, and you should be praying every day, but that doesn't mean you have to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to do it. Some people uh, can't do that. They're, they're not morning people. They're, they're night people, and they need to stay up until 1 or 2 in the morning and do that. And I think that's got to be, that's got to impress God. It impresses me, anybody who can do that. Of course, I'm a morning person. I like to be up at 5 in the morning. That probably impresses somebody else. Um, but this leads to moral degeneracy. That's what the Pharisees were. They were moral degenerates. They, they were very moral. We don't think of the word 
degenerate in terms of morality, but they were moral degenerates because they were completely divorced from God. Now, on the other hand, we have the people who are operating on licentiousness and lasciviousness and antinomianism, and this leads to immoral degeneracy. They're going to have a life that is filled with all kinds of personal sins. Now, this is the sin nature. Now, what are the products of the sin nature that destroy the soul? Well, the basic orientation of everyone's sin nature is arrogance. Every single human being has arrogance. Arrogance is the idea that I can somehow determine the course of my life and live my life without being accountable to God or anyone else. That's the essence of arrogance. Arrogance is is seen most clearly in the five I wills announced by Satan in Isaiah chapter 14, concluding with the fact that I will be like the Most High. It is the desire to be in complete con- for the creature to be in control of his life and determine the course of his life and the values of his life without any accountability to the Creator. So everybody is arrogant, and that arrogance is going to display itself in different ways, depending on your lust pattern, depending on whether you have a uh, uh, area of strength and whether your area of strength in human good, or whether you're just more licentious, depending on your trend. And if you're a parent, what well, you need to realize, you need to take this sin nature concept, and you need to take this and analyze your children in terms of this. It's going to make you a much more successful parent. If you understand, because from the day they're born, they're going to start manifesting their lust patterns. They're going to start manifesting manifesting their trends. They're going to. You, you look at some child that is very responsive, and and you very rarely have to discipline, and they they quickly uh, respond to everything that you want them to do. And some of you are shaking your head like, "Oh, please give me a child like that." This is a child who's operating on approbation lust. And if you're a parent you can, and you analyze their lust patterns, you can figure out how to really manipulate that child instead of letting them manipulate you. So this is really a great tool for parent-child relations. But the fact is that arrogance always leads to destruction. Arrogance is always self-destructive. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And the way that seems right to man is independence from God, and that is grounded in arrogance. So arrogance is the attitude or orientation of the soul which promotes the self over everything else. It is the orientation of independence from God that we can make life work on our own. And I have four principles of arrogance. First of all, arrogance is subtle. Most people who are operating on arrogance don't know they're operating on arrogance. Oh, I'm not arrogant. But that's the subtlety of arrogance. Often when we're arrogant, we're unaware of it. Because it's the basic orientation of the soul and our sin nature, it seems very normal and natural for us to be arrogant. So we're not arrogant. It's somebody else that's arrogant. Arrogance is skilled in the art of self-justification so that we automatically, we don't even think about it, we automatically cloak our arrogance in all sorts of moral rationales that seem obvious to us in their rectitude. We're right. Isn't that obvious to everybody else that I'm right and they're wrong? Arrogance destroys objectivity. 
It's only when you get right with the Lord under humility and with doctrine in your soul that you can have the objectivity to recognize your arrogance. Second principle in arrogance is arrogance is tenacious. It's the orientation of that sin nature, and arrogance is tenacious, and it doesn't want to give up. As soon as you've identified arrogance in your life in one way, and you think you've got control of it, it's going to pop up in another disguise, operating in some other area of your life. It doesn't give up. Arrogance is tenacious. Third, arrogance changes its forms from one arena to the another. For some period of your life, you may be licentious, and then you end up uh, feeling very guilty about something that you've done, and so all of a sudden your sin nature shifts its orientation to uh, uh, asceticism and an emphasis on moral good and trying to impress God, impress others, and you become a religious convert to some group. And so now you try to control everything through your religious activity, and your arrogance is now manifesting itself in another way. Arrogance changes its forms from one arena to another. Arrogance masters five skills, and you are a master of these five skills probably by the time you're two years old. Now, that's not a sociological study. That's just my guess, but I think you're probably there. Some of you who have actually raised children probably think it's much sooner than that, and that's due to the fact that I've never had to raise a child. But I've witnessed teenagers. I know what happens by then. Five arrogant skills. We've covered arrogant skills in the past, and I've covered four, and I'm adding one this morning. So you need to make note of that, and if you're teaching this in prep school, you need to uh, develop this. This is a cycle of five arrogant skills. The first is self-absorption. You don't have to do anything to develop this skill. You're born with it. You are Focus on yourself. Just watch that little baby. He is completely absorbed with getting his needs met. As soon as his needs aren't met, he starts screaming at the top of his lungs to let you know that you need to meet his needs. That's why you're there, parent. You are there to meet their needs, and that's probably going to be that way until they're 30 or 40 years old. Self-absorption is the first Skill that leads, and the more you're absorbed with yourself, the more you want to indulge all your own desires and cravings and lust patterns, and so that leads to uh, self uh, self indulgence. Self indulgence. That's an E. Self indulgence. You just give in to every little whim, every little desire, every little lust in your soul. There's the opposite of this is self discipline. Then, now that you're giving in to everything in your life, of course, you may come under a little criticism, so you have to develop a rationale to justify all of this. So the third arrogant skill is self-justification. The more you give in to self-justification, the more you become divorced from reality. You're operating on pure subjectivism. The only thing that matters is how it makes me feel and that I can get away with it. And so you are very subjective, and you look at life through your own experience and through your own grid, and you don't look at life from any sort of external objective pattern. You can't really love other people because love isn't selfish. Love isn't arrogant. So if all you've got is a sin nature and you're not a born-again believer, whatever love you have is going to be a qualified love. This is one reason why believers shouldn't marry unbelievers, is unbelievers can't really love. They may be selfless in a lot of ways, but they can't love as 
a believer can love. Now, that doesn't mean that just because you're a believer, you're going to love automatically. That real love is only going to be a product of a lifelong discipline in taking in the Word of God and walking by the Holy Spirit. So self-justification after subjectivism and developing all sorts of rationales to uh, justify your behavior is going to make you completely divorced from reality, and now you're living in an unreal world operating on full-blown self-deception. And you think that that the world revolves around you and everything is based on the way you think it should be. That leads to self-deception. And once you get past this point, then you come to the crowning skill of arrogance. And the crowning skill of arrogance is, can you stand the suspense? Self-deification. Self-deification. That is the fifth arrogant skill. This is exactly what Satan wanted. He wanted to be worshipped as God. He wanted to be God. And that is where arrogance goes. And it is an endless cycle. The more you're self-deified, the more you're going to be self-absorbed. This leads to further self-indulgence, more self-justification, more self-deception, more self-deification. You become your own God, the source of your own absolutes and the source of your own happiness. Now, sooner or later, there's something that is going to happen in your life, and the little house of cards you've developed from arrogance is going to come crashing down and you will come face to face with your own creatureliness. And it's at that point that you have, uh, in, in the lingo, a teachable moment where God has an opportunity to teach you something about grace. And that is when you can come to recognize that you are in need of a Savior and in need of salvation, and that is the first solution to the crisis of the soul. You can't ever get to a healthy soul if you, if you are not regenerate. Regeneration is the first step to a healthy soul because you have to be, have the recovery of that human spirit before you even have the option of being properly oriented to God and to reality. You see, reality is not what you say it is. Reality is what God says it is. But under arrogance, When we get into self-justification and self-deception, we are, in effect, defining reality for ourselves. And we are putting ourselves in the place of God. We are the ones who are going to determine what we can and cannot do, what we will and will not get away with. And eventually, that will lead to self-destruction. So the arrogant skills lead us to the path of self-destruction. Uh, destruction as well. What are some scriptures on arrogance? Proverbs 11, uh, Proverbs 11:2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Notice the contrast throughout Proverbs is always between pride and arrogance and humility. But it is only through humility that comes from grace orientation that you can have genuine wisdom. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 14.16, A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. That implication is he doesn't turn away from evil, but as it states elsewhere in the Scripture, he runs 
toward evil. Proverbs 16:18 Pride or arrogance goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 28:25 An arrogant man stirs up strife. So whenever you see people getting involved in some kind of conflict, some kind of strife, examine the situation to see if arrogance is lurking in the background. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. And then a passage from the New Testament, 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, but is not from the Father, but is from the world, the cosmic system. Arrogance is the modus operandi of the cosmic system. Now, what else destroys the soul? What else attacks the soul? Well, bitterness and jealousy, the worst enemies of the soul, are mental attitude sins. Not the overt sins that we think of, not even sins of the tongue, but the mental attitude sins, such as bitterness and jealousy. These reflect the whole array of mental attitude sins, which eat away at the soul. And each of these is a product of self-absorption in the soul, and there is a response to some wrong or perceived wrong. Why does somebody become bitter? Because they think that something in life should have gone a certain way. They're disappointed. They're resentful that somebody did something that hurt them. Somebody, somehow the system failed them. They were born without the things that they think they should have uh, been born with. So they focus on what they don't have and they become bitter and then they focus on those who have things and they become jealous and that becomes a motivation for taking from others uh, what they have earned in order to make it part of their own. This is a problem with much of social economic legislation is it's motivated by jealousy, taking from those that have worked hard and giving it to those who who do not want to work hard, and do not want to put forth the effort to earn these things. Bitterness is a part of an array of sins mentioned in Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, a sin of the tongue, be put away from you along with all malice. So you have four mental attitude sins there, bitterness and wrath and anger and malice. They tend to go together. These destroy the soul. Hebrews 12:15 See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. Now, why does the author of Hebrews juxtapose the grace of God with the root of bitterness? Because when you're oriented to the grace of God, you're going to be oriented in gratitude. You're going to be thankful for what you have. When you recognize who you are as a fallen creature, we recognize we don't have the right to anything. We don't have the right to anything that we might expect in life. We don't have the right to have certain possessions, to have a certain kind of family life or anything. In fact, the only thing we have a right to from the justice of God is eternal condemnation. So everything that we have is from the grace of God, and that should reveal itself in gratitude. Uh, If we focus on what we don't have, then what springs up is bitterness, which causes trouble, and it defiles many. And this is the Greek word, miaino, which was a word related to the unclean, uncleanliness and the unsanitary conditions uh, as a result of the of poor sanitation in the ancient world and has to do with um, 
someone being completely unclean spiritually. James 3.11, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Of course not, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, that is in your thinking, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. You can't have bitterness on the one hand and a positive spiritual life and healthy soul on the other hand. James 3.16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So bitterness and jealousy eat away at the soul. Another area that eats away at the soul is worry and anxiety and fear. They're closely related concepts. Worry and anxiety and fear. And worry and anxiety, we think that somehow, through all of our worry, we can control the situation, that we can stay awake at night, we can we can worry about something, we can be anxious or fearful, and somehow our state gives us some control over the situation. It's just the opposite. When you get into that state, you're out of control because the only thing you can control is your own attitude. You, we can't control circumstances. We can't control people. We can't control events. We can only control our thinking and our orientation to those events. And that can only come through the application of doctrine in the soul. Proverbs 12:25. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. But a good word makes makes it glad. So here we have an analysis that worry leads to depression. People are depressed. It's because they have that's been preceded by a mental attitude sin of worry and anxiety. In other words, you're not getting what you want, so you're worried and you're anxious about how to get what you want, and eventually you realize you may not get ever get what you want, so now you're depressed. Matthew 6:25 through 6:25, 6:28, 6:31 in the upper in the uh, sermon on the mount, Jesus says, "Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, the issue is not the physical, the issue is trusting and relying upon God." Verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor, nor spin. Verse 31, therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And then in verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, you don't worry, you let God take care of things. And the only way to handle the sin of worry, fear, and anxiety is cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. So health in the soul is destroyed by the activities of the sin nature. This produces trauma to the soul. And there are actually three basic attacks on the soul. Three basic attacks on the soul. The first is the outside pressure of adversity. Everyone goes through adversity. Everyone goes through different categories of adversity. But adversity is one assault, and, of course, the issue then is how do we handle the outside pressure of adversity, and it depends on your volition whether or not you will use the, the Word of God and the promises of God and the spiritual skills that we have studied. 
On the other hand, there are this, there are their stress in the soul, which is the inside pressure that is caused as a result of trying to handle outside pressure of adversity through the sin nature. And the third assault is temptation from the sin nature. Temptation always comes from the sin nature. There may be some external occasion for temptation, but temptation always comes from the sin nature. So if you want to avoid the lack of progress or well-being in the soul, then we cave in to outside pressure, which converts it to stress in the soul, and we yield to temptation from the soul. Now we have five points to review just to make sure you haven't forgotten what we've learned on adversity and stress. Remember, adversity is the outside pressure on the soul, and stress is inside pressure of the soul. When you take, for example, if you take metal that's been formed in any in any shape or object, and you want to test it to see if there are any internal flaws, then you put it under pressure. And when you put outside pressure on that piece of metal, if there were internal flaws, then it will begin to fragment. It creates stress fractures on the inside. So adversity is the outside pressure, stress is inside pressure. Second, adversity is what circumstances do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. You can't control adversity, but you can control your response to adversity. Adversity is what circumstances do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. Third, adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Everyone goes through adversity, but what happens, how you respond to that adversity is up to your volition. How are you going to handle it? In arrogance, which will eventually lead to a crisis, or are you going to handle it through the uh, spiritual skills or the stress busters, which we've been studying. Fourth, stress is what happens when you attempt to handle the outside pressure through human viewpoint techniques. No matter how good, time-tested, no matter how you try to handle it, if you are not handling that adversity through the stress busters, if you are not using uh, confession of sin, walking by the Spirit, faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation, personal sense of your eternal destiny, uh, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and inner happiness to handle the crisis, then you are using some sort of human viewpoint technique, and there will eventually be fragmentation in the soul. And the fifth point, stress is the result of the sin nature-based attempts to handle crises through self-reliance instead of God-dependence. Let's look at a couple of psalms just to give us an idea of how the psalmist handled some of these crises. Let's turn to Psalms chapter 6. Psalm chapter 6. I love reading through uh, the psalms, especially the lament psalms, and any time you're going through some kind of difficulty in life, I'm sure that by reading through, especially some of the early psalms and the first 50 psalms, there's an abundance of lament psalms here where David is just pushed against the wall due to some sort of crisis in his life, and he turns to God for aid. And you really get a sense of the emotions of the situation. David sometimes is extremely aggravated with God when he starts off. 
Because remember, he starts off where he's overwhelmed by his circumstances, and he may be even out of fellowship, looking at the details rather than uh, God's solution. Psalm chapter 7, David begins, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me, and deliver me lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none deliver. Now how can you read verse 2 without a sense of the fact that David just feels overwhelmed by his circumstances and by his enemies at this point, almost to the point of despair? So much so that in verse 3, he almost sounds like he's going to, he's bargaining with God. He sounds desperate in verse 3. He says, I'm in Psalm 7, I've started off there. Same principle as Psalm 6. He says in verse, uh, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there's iniquity in my hands, if I've repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. In other words, if there's some just cause for this, then go ahead and let that happen. And he calls upon God then in verse 6 and following to rise up in his anger. But by the time you get down to the end of the psalm, David has oriented to the justice of God. God is a just God. Verse 11, uh, God is one who will bring justice in my life. So he learns. he finally gets to the point of putting it before the Supreme Court of Heaven and ending up with praise to God in verse 17. Uh, Psalm 6 is another example of this kind of lament. And he begins uh, by saying this is a uh, to the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp. That's part of the inspired text. He's giving instructions. And he says, Psalm of David, verse 1, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. In other words, he recognizes that, that there has been some fault in his life, and he has probably confessed his sin at this point, and then he cries to God for mercy. Verse 2, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. Now, if you've ever been depressed, if you've ever been in a state where you just feel like the whole world is against you and everything's against you, then you know what David was feeling like. His bones are hurting. I mean, at his very core, he is physically miserable from the mental attitude sins in his life. And then in verse 3, he says, My soul also is greatly troubled. And the word here for troubled is the nifal, that's the passive, meaning that, that's a passive of bahal. It is dismayed, it's terrified. Bahal means to be alarmed, scared to death, completely bewildered, someone who is in a state that they can't think clearly because they are overwhelmed by their circumstances. That's what he means when he says, my soul is greatly troubled. I'm overwhelmed by my circumstances. But you, O Lord, how long? In other words, hey, I've been praying about this for a while, and there's no answer, and it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. And then he cries out to God in verse 4, Return, O Lord, deliver me, O save me for your mercy's sake, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? Notice the rationale here. He's arguing with God, not in the sense, not in the bad sense of the term, but in the case of a lawyer presenting a case. Lord, this is why you should deliver me. I praise you. Continuously, I get my life is a testimony to your grace. I and and we know David is one who wrote the hymn book for the for the uh, the hymn book for the worship in the temple. 
David's life, despite all of his many failures, was a life that was a tremendous testimony to God. And he is saying, God, who will praise your name or give thanks to you if I'm gone? If I die, that ends it. I don't have an opportunity to glorify you anymore with my life, so God, deliver me. See, he's building a case as to why God should take care of the problem so that he can continue to be a witness for God in the angelic conflict. He goes on in verse 6, I'm weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. You get a sense of how overwhelmed David is by his, by his circumstances. And so he cries out to God in desperation. But notice how he ends in verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. See, David is honest with God about the crisis in his life and the crisis in his soul. See, most people think, you know, I don't want to bother God with stuff like this. Get a grip on reality. That's arrogance. See, God is a God who knows you through and through. He knows the crisis. They're part of the problem with most of us is we're not willing to admit the problem, so we'll never know how to apply the solution. And sometimes God has to turn the pressure up so high for us to get past our arrogance to recognize what's really going on in our soul in terms of our independence from God. And sometimes the purging effect of that is not something you really want to go through. And this is the picture we have of uh, this is not simple, simple hyperbole, but that David is one who's just every night he's going to bed feeling defeated by his circumstances, unable to accomplish what he wants. His enemies surround him, and he is weeping, and he cries out to God, and then he has confidence. Verse 9, the Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back, turn back and be ashamed suddenly. And you see the transfer from his focus on his circumstances to his focus on God. And this is what promotes health to the soul. Some other psalms that I suggest that you look at would be the 23rd Psalm, which where the psalmist says that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then in verse 3, he restores my soul. God is the one who is able to give us soul health. He is the only one able to restore our soul. Uh, Psalm 31, the psalmist talks about the fact that it is God who knows our soul in adversities, but goes on to praise him for his deliverance. Then Psalm 42, verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? And the word there for disquieted, which sounds like a rather weak word, actually, is the cal perfect of the Hebrew word hama, which means to roar. I mean, this is a man who is in internal conflict. He's upset. He is pressured by everything around him. He says, why are you, why are you, my soul, roaring within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. So what is it that promotes health to the soul? Well, we have studied it many times. First of all, the way to recover, once you have failed, and we all fail all the time in many ways, the 
Uh, notice the first reaction for most of us is not automatically to use the faith rest drill or any of the spiritual skills. We often uh, respond more quickly with with anger, resentment, bitterness, uh, any number of mental attitude sins. And so the first thing we have to do is recover through confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. I thought it was interesting that the word euodao, which we're looking at in, in 3 John 2, for prosper was used in the in the uh, Septuagint to translate Psalm twenty eight thirteen. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. We confession is the starting gate to the path of recovery and using the spiritual skills. Then we walk by means of the Spirit. That is parallel to the concept of walking by means of the truth, which is what John emphasizes in 3 John 3. He expresses his joy that the report has come that uh, Gaius is walking by means of the truth. That means there has to be doctrinal orientation. We have to use the Faith rest drill. That means to we have to know promises and trust God. We have to use doctrinal orientation, orient our thinking to the Word of God, to truth. Jesus Christ said, said you shall know the truth, that is Bible doctrine, and the truth will set you free. See, your soul is enslaved to sin, and the only way to have freedom is by learning doctrine and applying it consistently. Then we have God. Uh, we have grace orientation, and we have orientation. We have grace orientation, which is key to learning anything. We have to develop humility, realizing that it's not dependent on us; it's dependent upon God. And then, when we finally begin to push through that maturity barrier, we understand that it's not about today; it's about our eternal testimony, and we have our personal sense of our eternal destiny. Then we develop in the love triplex, and we begin to develop a real love for God because we understand all that he is and all that he has done for us. And once you develop that love for God, that becomes the motivation for loving one another as Christ has loved us. It's not till then that you really begin to get a handle on what love is, and then that enables you to handle rejection. That enables you to handle the assaults from friends, the disappointments from those you care about. It's only when you have that impersonal love, that unconditional love that is based on an understanding of grace. And then we're occupied with Christ. We're keeping our focus on Him who is the author and finisher of our faith, and then we have that inner happiness that Christ gives us. So this is how we maintain that soul health, but it is grounded in the two the two power sources for the Christian life, the Holy Spirit and truth, which come together for John in that phrase, walking by means of truth, which we'll study next time in the third verse, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. We thank you for the clarity of it. Father, we thank you that you have provided all that we need to have a healthy soul, that it comes from grace. It's not dependent upon who we are or what we have done, but it is dependent upon who you are and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. 
take this opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is based on what Christ did on the cross and nothing else. It's not based on believing in Jesus and going to church. It's not based on believing in Jesus and following religious ritual. It's not based on believing in Jesus and living a good life. It is faith alone in Christ alone. He paid the penalty in full, and salvation is a free gift. We don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. Father, we pray that, that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen.